get into my message, there's one thing I did not mention. We reached the goal of our Sue Nishikawa missions offering. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who gave, those who gave, and, and I want to say thank you. That's huge. That's how, this is how we as a Southern Baptist church do missions, and 100% of that Sue Nishikawa offering, 100%, goes to Hawaii missions to proclaim the greatness of Jesus, to make Jesus look great in Hawaii. So thank you guys for giving and giving sacrificially. It was not a small amount. I'm not going to lie. I honestly was like, ooh, I don't know if, I don't know if we're going to hit that. But <laughs> the Lord, again, as he often does, kind of uh, showed me how powerful he is through you. So thank you. God bless you guys. Um, Mark 11. Mark 11, 1 through 33, the title of my sermon is Have Faith in God. Have Faith in God. In God. We have faith in lots of things, like our odds. What are the odds that my plane will go down? Hawaiian Air has never had a plane go down. I'm going to take comfort in my odds. Have faith in God. I want to encourage you. Have faith in God this morning. We take comfort and have faith in many things. Direct your faith to God. And I pray that the Spirit working through the Word will elevate the sun in your hearts as we see Jesus depicted in Mark 11. If you remember Mark 10, last week we saw the God who saves and the God who secures. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a, very important word, ransom for many. Our God is a God who serves. And the end of that, the tail end of that, the healing of the blind man Bartimaeus will provide the context, the framework for leading into chapter 11. Have faith in God. So they're going to Jerusalem from Jericho, about 20 miles on foot. 20 miles, that's a long trek on foot. I think it's safe to say. From Jericho to Jerusalem, they're coming, they're traveling, and it's the week of Passover. You could call this not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, I am going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and I'm going to be beaten and killed and I will raise again on the third day. Jesus is coming to complete his mission. So if you were watching a movie, maybe, this week, this scene would be key. This is Jesus entering Jerusalem. All of Mark, Mark 1 to 10, has been the life of Jesus. It started the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He covers it in 10 chapters, his 33 years of life, summarized. Chapters 11 to the end of the book, 
all one week of Jesus' life. One week of his life. The last week. The culmination of why he came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Mark's going to flush all that out in one week. So this is pivotal for Mark. And he starts it out with Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover. You can imagine, can you imagine, can you imagine, I'm sure some of you can, myself can, can you imagine your favorite Bible scholar coming to town? I can, I've been looking forward to it for two years, ever since I heard Piper and Carson were coming. Can you imagine the excitement, the joy? I love this guy. I've seen him on YouTube or at CamelTube or whatever they would have called it back then. I've seen him down at the well. I've heard about his healings. And I, I heard this one story. Is that true? Did he, really, did he really heal that guy? I don't know. Did you see him? I heard. Well, what about this guy? Well, what about that guy, Lazarus? I heard he died. No, some people said he was asleep. Oh, Can you imagine the excitement, the stirring that was preceding the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem before Passover? Anticipation, things are going to get exciting. Can you imagine it? I hope you can. Let's read Mark 1, sorry, Mark 11, 1 to 33. It's important. This is the word of God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you, but you have made it a den of robbers? 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, who is in heaven, forgive you your trespasses. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do what I cannot create faith this morning. Lord, you are the true and the faithful one. And we are so many times faithless and weak. Father, nothing is impossible with you. All things are possible with you. So would you strengthen our faith, strengthen our love for Jesus as our King. May Jesus be the one we come to for full access and fellowship with you. And may we not seek it outside in any other name but the matchless name of Jesus. Lord, work this morning, I pray, for your name and your glory. Amen. We're going to see three points. Three points. I'll keep it simple. Last week was two. This week we'll have three. Three points. A different king, a different temple, and a different prayer. I'm going to break this down through those three points. A different king, there's a different temple, and a different prayer. Jesus came into town, and the first thing he does is sends his disciples to go grab a majestic white stallion. No. He goes and he grabs a donkey. A donkey. Hee-haw. Donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. Jesus isn't Shrek. That's what I thought of when I thought of a king riding a donkey. Shows my generation. You don't pick a geoprism for a grand entrance if you're a king. You don't ride in the extra economy portion of the airplane if you're a king. You purchase your own jumbo jet. You come in with flair. Whatever it is for you, a Cadillac, Escalade, Limousine, Humvee, H3, whatever it is. You don't come in on a donkey. That's exactly what Jesus did. And in so doing, he was claiming his rightful lay to the throne of David. He is the king. Jesus is not ignorant, and he is not acting foolishly or haphazardly. 
Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy before their very eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. He is laying stake to the kingship. I am the one who was to come. Your king is here. This is also part of his humility. We just finished the book of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is part of his humiliation because Jesus is God. He is the king. He should be riding in a jumbo jet on a massive stallion, but he comes in his humility on a donkey. This is part of his humiliation and his obedience to the will of the Father. Furthermore, he is the king who is leading his disciples by example. He is leading and being their example. Remember the last chapter. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And in response, the crowds, they see this donkey there, undoubtedly some of them connecting the dots. They're singing out from Psalm 118, verse 26, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, we pray. It's a shout of praise. This, this psalm that they're quoting is from the psalm of, that, that describes the delivery that God worked from their slavery in Egypt. An Egyptian deliverance psalm. It's one they sung often at this time, but this time now they're ascribing it as praise to Jesus. They are recognizing what his claim is. There's an amount of people today, maybe you're one of them or maybe you have been one of them at some time, I don't know, but there's an amount of scholarship that says Jesus wasn't really God. He was a revolutioner. Uh, he, he was proclaiming the gospel of a kingdom, but he, he himself never claimed to be God. That is utter foolishness, friends. Utter foolishness. His disciples knew what he was claiming. His opponents knew what he was claiming. And Mark records this for our sake, as does Matthew, Luke, and John. All of them record This truth about Jesus. They were not deceived. Mark wants you this morning to commend Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. And he wants you to yield an absolute submission to him. Jesus is the coming Messiah. His opponents recognized it. Luke tells us that the Pharisees rebelled commanded Jesus, they told Jesus, rebuke your disciples, because they knew exactly what they were saying. And Jesus said, if these were silent, I tell you, the very stones would cry out. 
Jesus is the coming King, the Messiah. Few things that we can learn from this. Aside from that, Jesus is in absolute control. Even the details of the donkey are pointed. Chapter 10, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And he will rise again three days later. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is by no means going to be thrown off guard by the events that are to come. He has orchestrated it from eternity past, from before the foundations of the world. He has set forth what's about to happen. How much more the suffering in your life? He is not thrown off guard, dear friends, by the pain of persecution of sicknesses, of chronic illnesses that lead to death. He is not caught off guard. He is always ruling and reigning where he has always been and always will be. He is the God Almighty. And he is coming with purpose on this donkey to ransom sinners like you and like me. His death will not be an accident. It will be a payment. His life for you. We also see that this is the last, the first and the last time that Jesus will come on a donkey. This is awesome. This is what we look forward to with communion. This is the first and last time Jesus will come on a donkey. He is coming on a war horse next time. Revelations 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed. In a robe dipped in blood and by a name which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will... This is an intense phrase. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The first time Jesus is coming, meek and lowly on a donkey, treading across the cloaks and palm branches of people. The second time he is going to come on a great white stallion and he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. If you are not a follower of Jesus, that is the most terrible news that you could ever look forward to. In between his first coming on a donkey 
and his second coming on a white stallion. There is time for you, dear friend, dear sinner. If you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, he offers you peace. He offers you peace by faith alone in the work of the risen Jesus Christ. There's time. There's time. I don't know you. I don't know who you are, some of you. I do know some of you. I don't know what your situation in life is, but right now, before he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, I don't even know the full implications of what that means, and I don't want to be around to find out, and I know you don't want to either. Brothers and sisters, there is time today. Tomorrow is not promised for you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He offers you peace. Not later, but now. It's a different king. He is a king who serves in humility and meekness right now. Number two, a different temple. There's a different temple. Verses 12 to 19. We could run it through to the end of 26, but we'll block it off at 19. There's a few things that happen here. Mark, as we've been walking through, does this sandwich thing. We saw the technical word is. Do you, anybody remember it? Didn't think so. Intercalation. The easy word is, yeah, I know you're like, I was on the tip of my tongue. The easy word, I just call it a Mark sandwich. Okay, he's just making a sandwich. You've got on one side a fig tree. Jesus sees the fig tree, curses it because there's no fruit. There's only leaves. And the strange thing is it's not even in season. So why would he curse it? Good question. Then he cleanses the temple. And then right after that in the account, we go back to the fig tree. You see, it's a sandwich. Fig tree on one side, fig tree on the other side. Cleansing of the temple in the middle. They're interrelated. There's something about the others that they're trying to teach us. Jesus goes into the temple. I'll try my best to explain it. That's the only... Some people say it's the only. If you include the swine and the demons going into the swine and crashing into the sea, then this is the only other, but most would say it's the only miracle of Jesus that resulted in judgment. All the miracles of Christ were benevolent, healing, raising the sick, helping. But this is the one that comes in judgment, and it gives people a hard time. But it should tell us something that Mark wants us to see a symbolism in the fig tree. That Jesus was acting purposefully almost like a prophet of old, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Isaiah specifically had to walk around naked to show how they were going to be put in open shame. Jesus almost acting in that manner which would explain some of the peculiarities. Why would he curse a fig tree not in season? Because he wants us to learn a lesson. And praise God that that fig tree got the curse rather than a person. Praise God that if we learn the lessons, he should have cursed a thousand and thousand fig trees for us to learn. But he only did one. So even in his act of judgment, he's being very merciful. Jesus goes into the temple. He starts driving out money changers and sellers Let's say this, There's, this text right here is often taken to mean today. Some of you might have heard this. Because of this is what Jesus did. You shouldn't sell stuff in the temple, and he was driving people out of the temple. Therefore, we don't sell things in the church building. We don't actively promote the selling of things. We don't do any of that. 
It's a common belief. Um, This is only possible to say that if we mistakenly equivocate the Old Testament temple with the New Testament church building and say that they are the same thing. Seems reasonable, makes sense on the face of it, but go a little deeper into actually the teachings of Scripture and nowhere, 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 nowhere is a church building like this one equivocated with the temple of the Old Testament. It's actually against what Jesus was teaching, that the Old Testament temple is going away, and this is why. Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Or Colossians 2.9, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what's going on? All of the Old Testament law, all of it, all the portions of it, all pointed to Jesus. The temple was a shadow. Jesus was the reality of that. Jesus was the figure casting the shadow of the temple. So when Jesus comes, there's no need for the temple because Jesus is the temple. Now, let's think about this. Let's work. I'm just going to blast through some redemptive history. The temple was the dwelling place of God with his people. That's where God dwelt with and amidst his people. It's where you would go if you wanted to meet with God. It's where God's display, his his Shekinah glory, he displayed it on several occasions there. It was a sign of his continuing presence and blessing to his people. All of this was in the Old Testament temple. And now, when he comes to the fig tree and you see this play on words, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And they come back the next day, and it's withered to its roots. In effect, his cleansing of the temple in between the story of the fig tree is in essence demonstrating that Jesus is now the place to go and meet with God. Not the temple. Not the temple. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Not the temple. Physical temple. Jesus is the figure. The temple is the shadow. So, I spoke on this before. Cover that again. The church building is not the temple. Jesus is the temple. And by virtue now, Paul would later come in 1 Corinthians 3 and on and say, you are the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's not undercut the richness of the New Testament teaching on the temple and boil it down to something that is made with hands. It is bought and made with the precious blood of Christ, you. He also makes a statement about this house, this temple being a house of prayer, he says, for all the nations. See, what he was actually doing is they had set up shop in the Gentile court, the court of the Gentiles. That's where basically all of us would go who are not Jews. 
If you wanted to have a relationship to see this God, to worship this God, to pray to this God, that's where you would go. But guess what? It's full of people charging way too high of rates. It's full of people who are just in and around there. Imagine if we had people around and you're trying to worship God. and It's the only place a foreigner could go. And Jesus goes and clears it and says, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a king. He is a Jewish king, but he is not just a Jewish king. He is the king, the Lord of nations. Jesus is seeking the nations. Jesus is where all men, all men, women too, of every nationality, creed, color, Race, go to meet with God. And he is building a temple of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus is seeking the nations. And I am utterly thrilled. It is a joy of mine that not many of my mainland friends get to share in to pastor and shepherd a church that is so ethnically diverse. Because we are painting a picture of what Jesus came to accomplish. This is his will that whites and Hawaiians and Asians and African-Americans and everything else, that we would all be together in one body and Canadians and everybody. Jesus is seeking the nations. Things heat up quickly from here. Suddenly the chief priests and scribes seek a way to destroy this Jesus. That's what kind of happens when you accuse people of disobeying God when they think they're serving him. And start to heat up very quickly. We saw there's a different king, a different temple, Jesus, and a different prayer. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach something about prayer. He says, they ask him about the fig tree, and his response kind of seems shocking at first. It's not exactly what you would expect. What, what, what's the deal with the fig tree? It withered, and he says, have faith in God. And you're like, Whew. right over my head. What's he doing? In chapter 13, Jesus is going to prophesy the actual physical destruction of the temple. That occurred in AD 70 after Jesus died. Jesus knows how much the temple means to the Jews, his disciples, and he encourages them, don't have faith in the temple. Because see, when the temple is destroyed, people view it as God is against us. His blessing has left us. We are abandoned. That's the way they felt in the past. And now he is encouraging them. When that day happens, they don't even know what he's talking about. When that day happens, have faith in God, not this physical temple. And he goes to talk about faith and how if you have faith, this mountain, you can say, get up and be thrown into the sea and it will be done for you. Has anybody been trying to yell at Haleakala? Be thrown into the sea and have faith. Be thrown into the... Right? No, we don't do that. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's, he's speaking very large to say that your faith in God will accomplish powerful things. So I don't want to see any of you standing in the parking lot after service, like rebuking the mountains. Okay? It's not what he has in store here. What he's saying is the power is not necessarily in your faith. Make sense? When we walk around here, we talk to a lot of people, our friends, and they say, oh, I 
Faith is powerful. You've got to have faith. There's a power in faith. Have... Jesus is not so much talking about the power of faith as in the power of the one whom you are having faith in, God. God. It matters which God you have faith in, and your faith is directed to And so he encourages us to pray. Whatever you ask, praying, believing, don't have any doubt, you will receive. As if you've received it already. This text has led some people, actually many people, to summarize it by saying, name it, that's it, and claim it. You guys know. You guys know, this is what he says, right? Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, name it. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And claim it. And when you... Oh, I'll get, I'll get to 25 in a second. We're not going to spot there. Name it and claim it. That's how some have suggested that. This is not what that text means, sort of. I'll get to the sort of. It's not what the text means. It's not saying, hey, yes, what do I want? Jesus, I believe I'm going to get this house or this loan paid off or get better. And I believe it. Don't doubt. You're going to receive it. And therefore, if you don't receive it, they say you don't have enough faith. No, that's, that's utterly foolish. James says you ask and do not receive. So you're asking, we're we're practicing, and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See that. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And he calls them an adulterous generation. How can we use God? in his massive gift of prayer, to ask him to have an affair on him with some created thing. So he calls us adulterers. John 14, Jesus says it like this. Whatever you ask, here it is, in my name, this I will do, that the the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. John, 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. This is awesome. This is going to be the sort of that I was talking about. It's not what it means, sort of. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We have a new way of praying. You can have confidence that when you pray in the name of Jesus, because his name is the only name that gets access to God, when you pray in that name, this is the confidence that you have that he hears you. He hears you. If I write the President of the United States, I am not going to expect a letter back. We just heard from one of the conference speakers we went to, Michael O. The way he met D.A. Carson, is he, or John Pipers, he wrote him a letter, basically like a stalker letter. Hey, if I can just follow you around, you don't have to talk to me, right? And if I can just follow you around and learn stuff from you, that'd be great. And he said, you never wrote me back. <laughs> Right? He never wrote him back. Surprise. I have no confidence that some of these people will hear me, but you have the God of creation. And he says this confidence in Christ, when you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. You have an audience before him. 
That is the sort of. Because there is a sense, we're reactionary, right? Okay, there's a pendulum way over here. And that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. So I don't want to be anything like that. So I'm going to swing way over here and say, no, we're not going to do any. We really probably should be balanced. Because, brothers and sisters, there are scriptural promises that God and Christ intends us to claim and stake our lives on. There are promises that we are to hold and wrestle with God. That's the biblical pattern of praying. God, you promised to make your name great. You promised to deliver this people. And if we fail, you look bad. So make your people, make your name great and deliver your people. That is Moses' pattern of praying. Don't destroy them. There are promises that we are to name I don't want to say it because it's got so many bad. There's, there's promises we are to stake our lives on. So don't go too far. And what's at stake here? What does he say? The very next verse of 1 John 5, what types of things do you pray for? If anyone sees his brother, so this is confidence that we have. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Next verse, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask, how? Ask in prayer, and God will give him life. And God will give him life. If anyone sees your brother in Christ committing a sin, not leading to death, and you ask God, you come before Jesus, and you pray, Lord, deliver them. Strengthen them to endure. Help them. Help me to help them. God will at times deliver them from death. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the implication of what's at stake and your prayers for one another for me. When Jesus says, if your eye sins against you, pluck it out. If I'm struggling, I need your prayers. Because it might be through your prayers that I don't get handed over to sin. Brothers and sisters, do not neglect this great gift of prayer. And there is a way to ask wrongly. So how do I know if I'm asking wrongly in my prayer life? Well, if you're not praying, then that's in and of itself. But if you are praying to the degree that your prayers line up with the biblical prayers, you can be confident that you are praying and asking rightly. In other words, look at what the biblical writers pray for and line your prayer list up against that. Do they look the same? Are you praying for holiness? Are you praying to abound in love? Are you praying to be more and more like Jesus? Are you praying to have a soft, tender heart? Are you praying to hate sin more? Are you praying for the gospel to be known in Kahului and in your family and in the nations? Are you praying for those things? Because that's what the biblical writers pray for. And then lastly, we will sum up with this. Jesus makes a statement about unforgiveness and bitterness. Makes a statement about unforgiveness and bitterness. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. So this is all this stuff. He's a king. He's the temple and he's renewing things and he's coming to fulfill prophecy and he says all these things about prayer. And then he says, and when you stand praying, forgive. 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, don't miss that, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. An unforgiving heart seems small and simple, but it's huge. This is huge for all of your relationships in here. An unforgiving heart hinders your relationship with God. Your prayers are hindered by an unforgiving, bitter heart. And persistent, persistent unforgiveness might reveal, might reveal, persistent unforgiveness might reveal you have no relationship with God. But you have no relationship with God. Think about what's bound up when we cling to bitterness. Eternity. An eternity. Why forgive them? Is that what the text says? So that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 26. But if you do not forgive, if you do not forgive... Neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses if you do not forgive. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to not forgive, though. If you are in Jesus, this is what's at stake. This is what's at stake. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I have seen lives rot away. I have seen people rot away. There are even studies on this about how bitterness physically affects even your outward appearance. Eternal realities are at stake. Why, why, if I choose not to forgive, why does this warrant my Father in heaven not forgiving me? This is why, because it is an evidence that you have not tasted the grace of God. An unforgiving heart is an evidence that you have not tasted the massive grace of God that He has shown in forgiving you. Will this not transform our work relationships? Would this not transform our brother-sister grudges that last 20, 30, 40 years? Will this not transform our marriages? Brothers and sisters, a persistent, unforgiving heart hinders your relationship with God.
But Jesus came to offer peace. Peace for you with God. You have no hope of forgiving your friend, family, loved one, spouse, anybody if you have not been forgiven by God. As God in Christ forgave you, He offers you peace. He offers you peace. He came riding on a donkey right now. There is peace available by faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Don't miss your opportunity to have peace with God today. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, if you are struggling with this in any way, and we all do, we all, we all do, hear the words of Jesus. When you stand praying or singing, if you have anything against anybody, go and grant that forgiveness. May the Lord be glorified. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. It is able to pierce our hearts and souls, Lord Jesus. Would you break our hearts over our own sins? Lord, may we not hang on to anger and wrath and malice or bitterness. Lord, or stand in judgment over others and let it blind us to our own separation from you, Lord. Would you work forgiveness, Lord? You came to not to be served, but to serve. Father, may you grant us all to have faith in God. And as we sing, may we sing joyfully and loudly because you have redeemed us. Lord, do this for your name's sake and your glory. Amen. I'll be over here.